0: Hey friends, the newest season of the Good Life Coach podcast comes out Wednesday, October 5th with all new interviews, and I cannot wait to share them with you. In the meantime, enjoy today's replay with one of my favorite guests. Here we go. I do think that they are
1: available to everybody. These little angels who show up and who champion us, they are actually there all the time, but we need to be able to recognize that they're there. And I think that you draw the energy you put out into this world. I love to be on the positive side of life. I believe that good things will come to me. Mm -hmm. I believe that wonderful gratitude that I give out every day to just my health, uh, my husband, my family. Uh, Thank you so much for being there for me you know what it all comes back to you
0: welcome to the good life coach podcast i am your host michelle lamoureux the intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle Lamoureux, and welcome back to the Good Life Coach podcast. Alka Joshi is joining us today. She was born in India and raised in the United States since the age of nine. She has a BA from Stanford University and an MFA from California College of Arts. At age 62, Alka published her debut novel, The Henna Artist which immediately became a New York Times bestseller. A Reese Witherspoon book club pick was long listed for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize and is being developed into an episodic series by Miramax TV, which is incredible, by the way. (laughs) The sequel, The Secret Keeper of Jaipur premieres this month, June of 2021, and will be followed by the third book in the trilogy next year. Welcome, Elka.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much, Michelle. So lovely to be here.
0: Oh, it's so amazing to have you on. Your book is genius. This writing is just delicious. I mean, it's just, it pulls you in. I mean, by that first, end of that first chapter, I was like, oh my goodness, so much has happened. And you just are (laughs) eager to just get into it. You need to know what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, I love books that transport me to other worlds. And that also teach me something about a different culture, a tradition, Uh, that teach me about language and food of that culture. I've always loved books like that. And I had no idea when I was younger, like 20, 30, 40 years old, that I would ever end up writing a book like that, the kind of book that I like to read.
0: (laughs) It's amazing. And And that's what I want to dive into today, actually. Like, how did this happen? Because you had a very successful career running your own PR and ad agency for over 30 years. And then suddenly you become this New York Times bestseller, Reese Witherspoon, you know, picks your book, it's <laughs> turned into a TV series. I mean, this is all incredible, but you also started your MFA program at 51. So I'd love for you to take us into your story. Okay.
1: I think that
0: my parents,
1: the way that they always ran their lives was that, um, they they did what they thought they really wanted to do, what they were passionate about. My father, I know, always pursued his dreams about that. And so we came to the United States uh, when I was nine. My brothers were 11 and eight uh, because my father wanted to get his PhD in civil engineering and he was doing a particular kind of research that was only available in the United States or in Germany. So that is, I mean, you know, he had three kids in tow, but he said, I don't care. I want to pursue this. So I'm going to go across the world and uh, you know, sign up for this program. So that's what he did. And uh, then, you know, uh, after 10 years of working in the private sector, he thought, you know what, I think I really want to teach uh, university level. So then he went off and got a tenured position wow. and at university level. So I think he's been my inspiration really for being able to change my life at any time. And I have changed my career several times right after college, I was a management trainee for the Prudential Insurance Company, if you can believe that. And I did that for like four years. And I just thought, this is not creative. I really need to do something creative. And then I took some time off, had saved some money. So I studied for two years to go into advertising and graphic design. And that's what I ended up doing then for the next 30 years. Um, And I really enjoyed that in the corporate sector. But in the corporate sector, I found myself limited, because I thought, you know, this is a box that I am in. This box was not created by me. I am not getting ahead in this box. Mm. And so I need to figure out what is my box? What do I want to create for myself? And that's when I went off and formed my own agency. And I've been, uh, you know, so successful in having my own business. And frankly, this is a point, Michelle, that I want to make about women. Women are such natural multitaskers. We know how to uh, talk to small children. We know how to talk to our husbands. We know how to negotiate uh, things that we want people in our lives to do for us or around us. Uh, We know how to manage money because oftentimes we are the people who are managing that for our households. Um, And we have so many skills that we are simultaneously uh, interacting with that I think we are perfectly poised to start our own businesses. And I really felt that at the time I started my business, I thought, I can do this. I know I can do this. And um, within the first year, I was so successful that I thought, okay, great, I have invented my own box. I am not in that (laughs) other box anymore. And I'm going to do my own thing. And um, the other kind of license that having my own business gave me is the ability to take time off. So if I felt like I was getting burned out and I needed to take time off, I would just take three months off, six months off. One year, my husband and I decided we're just going to go to Paris and uh, Florence. We're just going to live there, you know, quit yeah. our, you know, like not, not not work for a year and just live off of savings. And so that's something that we ended up doing. And I think that so much of that just comes from knowing that you're going to be okay because you've always been okay because. Everything that you have started in your life or tried in your life, you have done with intention and you have done with a clear mind about how you were going to get there. And the universe takes care of you. The universe always takes care of us, Michelle. I really believe that. So, um, yeah. So... When it came time to start writing or to go into the MFA program, there was a recession on. It was a big mortgage crisis in this country. And I uh, realized I was going to have some downtime in my business because a lot of clients were scaling back on projects. And I thought, oh, you know what? Let me try that MFA program that my husband has always been encouraging me to do because I'm always telling stories to him, making up stories about people. And so I enrolled (laughs) in the program and I've never looked back because um, in the program, program, I found that I got a lot of positive feedback from my instructors. They said, first of all, you're writing about a time period in India that hasn't been written about a lot before. This is post-independence, but a time, a very heady time for India, a time when everything is possible. There are so much rebuilding going on and Indians are feeling very positive about their future. Um, and then, of course, I'm writing about a woman uh, who is a very strong character and leaves her marriage in order to forge her own future as a henna artist and an herbalist. That is something that hasn't been written about before, so I just found so much encouragement that I just kept going and going. Now, in addition to all of this, I wrote this novel so that I could give my mother a fictional life of the kind that she didn't have in reality, Uh, the life of a woman who does forge her own path and navigates that patriarchy on her own terms. Uh, But then my mother died shortly after I finished uh, my MFA. And so I thought, well, that is over. You know, I wrote this novel for her and now she's no longer here. And it just causes me so much grief to, to, to go back to this novel. And I just gave it up. I gave it up. And then it wasn't until two years later that one of my thesis advisors called me and said, what has happened to that novel? Talk to me. And so as Mm. I talked to her, she said, you know, listen, why don't we work on the novel together and let's see what comes of it. A year and a half later, she sent it off to her agent. And uh, so her agent called me and said, I love this novel. I love this manuscript. I love this character. We need to work on it together. Now we spent the next three years working on it together. And then even after all of that, she said, you still need a developmental editor. So then I I hired a couple of developmental editors to look through the manuscript and give me ideas. I'm glad I hired two because I got, you know, slightly different takes on what I could do with the story. Um, And ultimately, it was a nine to 10 year process. Wow. To really work on this novel, to go really deep into the characters, to build their backstories and their future stories. Now, a lot of these pages don't make it into the book. As a writer, you know this. These, uh, you will write a lot that will never make it into the book because you're trying different things with the relationships between characters, with the plot line, with the subplots. And so, you know, you just, you don't know where all of that's going to take you. But once you hit the spot where you think, This is perfect. I want my characters to do this. This is right. Then you go into that path and then that diverges into many different paths. Once again, you're trying different things and then you will find a path, uh, you know, that you want to go to into that as well. So uh, I think that it seems like uh, something that I started at 51 but did not publish until 62, So I think it's important for people to know that it does take time to get good at something, right? Yeah. I mean, it takes time to get good at being a mom,
0: right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much never stops. Yeah, you always question whether you're doing things right. (laughs) You know, Um, so there's so much I want to unpack to what you've talked about. It's such a great story too in your journey. And I appreciate you saying you know, you started at 51 and published at 62. Even I had Stacey Madison on who founded Stacy's Chips. And, you know, it was nine years from concept to sale. People just hear about, oh, you sold that company for $250 million or with you, Alka. Oh, instant New York Times bestseller and Reese Witherspoon pick. They don't know all of the backstory yeah. and all that hard work and all the research and, and yeah. time that went into it and the development. Uh, And the care and the love, and as you called it, and something I watched, a love letter to your mom, and you had the emotional components of everything you were doing. I mean, that adds a whole other layer. Uh, And then
1: something extraordinary happened during those 10 years that I was working on it. As I did more research, as I found out more about why India was in such tatters after independence, why was it so poor? Why was it, uh, you know, in need of so much embellishment and rebuilding? It was because colonization had done so much to damage not only the physical businesses that were in India that the British destroyed so that they had no competition with their own businesses in England, like their textile mills. But also because it ruined the psyche of the people, you know, uh, I think that colonization, no matter where in the world it has happened, it really damages um, the self-esteem of the people who live there. Somehow they end up feeling lesser than. Um, Now, Indians were very interesting in my research. What I found out is that Indians did not feel less than. They just were so resilient that they said, "Okay." that period is over. Now we need to start rebuilding. We need to start uh, thinking about how we want to educate our people and how we want to rebuild these industries and which industries we want to focus on. And uh, today, 70 years later, India is an economic force to be reckoned with. They are a huge powerhouse and they will become even more of a powerhouse in the next decade. So I, as I researched all of that, I thought, oh, my God, I come from an amazing heritage. And I want to talk about that because I think it's that same persistence uh, of intention that has helped me get to where I wanted to go to at every point in my life. It's the same thing that my father focused on. It's this sort of persistence uh, to say, I want to do something else. How do I get there? How can I make things happen for myself? And it's uh, stood me in good stead all of these years. And I think it can stand anybody in, in, in good stead. But uh, the book then ended up not just being a love letter to my mother, but also to my country of birth. Oh,
0: love that so much. So i am curious. Yeah, actually, how much of um, living in India do you remember? Because you moved when you were the age of nine. You know, I remember
1: a lot. And I think it's the kind of thing that you never forget because it's... Uh, Part of my first language, my first memories, Um, you know, until the age of nine, I was living, breathing, speaking, eating India, basically. So, and then even after we came to the United States, my mother was always cooking South Asian food and we were, um, you know, she was speaking in Hindi at home. And so we are conversing both in English and in Hindi with her. Uh, So I think that there is so much of that that gets embedded in your DNA, no matter where you're from in those early years that you can never let go of. And it all comes rolling back. It's almost like these are um, uh, cabinets in my brain that I locked up a long time ago. And then as soon as I start thinking about them, I can unlock them. And then all of a sudden, these memories uh, come flooding back. The other part of I think what really helped me is all of those trips I took with my mom back to Japor at the same time that I started writing The Henna Artist. So during those years, I had semester breaks that I was in my MFA program. I had semester breaks. I had summer breaks. I had winter breaks. And I would take my mom to Jaipur because my younger brother had uh, uh, bought a condo there. And he had said, hey, anytime anybody wants to go, however long you want to stay, you can just uh, stay here. So when I was there with my mother, I also had the benefit of her memories. All of a sudden, memories were coming back to her that she hadn't remembered in all of those years. So that was really cool because her memories combined with mine helped me to write uh, the first novel and then also the second novel.
0: I love it. So she knew what the story was about. Did she ever get to read it? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, she was so funny. She
1: goes, now, honey, you have uh, <laughs> Lakshmi being a henna artist, but we are Brahmin. We're not allowed to be henna artists. That's a whole different caste that does that kind of work. And I said, Yeah, but mom, I need for my henna artist to be able to straddle a lot of different classes and castes. The only way she can do that is if she is of high caste, but she does the work of a lower caste. So now she can go to the upstairs, downstairs of any home, right? And uh, then my mom said, well, yeah, okay, but... You've got her doing this henna that is so elaborate. And when I had henna done uh, when I was married in 1955, it wasn't elaborate. It was actually pretty crude and kind of like a whole bunch of geometric patterns. Uh, and I said, okay, once again, Mom, what I've learned in my MFA program is that the author gets to take creative license, and my creative license is going to be that Lakshmi can do such elaborate henna that she makes ten times what everybody else is making, and she <laughs> and she gets to do this very very. successful thing where she is building her own house. This is a big deal for her.
0: Completely. She's so, she's such a powerhouse and she's so confident. You're just like, yes, go. She's such a great, um, you know, main character that you're just rooting for her and her abilities. She's so smart. Um, and I loved learning about the various parts of the caste system and stuff, which my daughter was reading about in sixth grade. I was just learning about that, and I was like, "Oh, she literally was just reading this, and I'm learning about it now through your book, which is very Good. important." Yes, Good. you were going to say something though. So your daughter was learning about the caste system. She was, and,
1: and you know, it's interesting that all of my life here in the United States, I've been asked as soon as people find out I'm Indian, they say, "Oh, you're you have a caste system. Tell me about the caste system," and it's this kind of strange fascination that they have with the caste system, whereas I always think, no matter what country I've been in, I have found hierarchies everywhere I go. 100%. Yeah, it's not unusual. It's just that uh, in India, it was always formally called the caste system, and it was delineated according to jobs that people had in different castes. You know, that was the job you were allowed to have. As a Brahmin, you could be a priest or a teacher. As a Kshatriya, you could be a warrior or a ruler. So these were, you know, jobs that were delineated. And over time, I think they they became more class system oriented. But every single culture that I have ever been to has always had a hierarchy. And I like to have people know that in the country of India, There are many stories. It's not just about caste. It's not just about arranged marriages. It's not just about the art of henna, but it is about many different stories of people who are probably just like you are in the country you live in and in the culture that you have.
0: 100%. I could not agree with that more. I mean, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. You talked about how your dad kind of inspired you to really go for your dreams and to take risks. But your mom's journey, obviously, too, Raising the three kids and stuff also impacted it. And I actually have a belief system that we are here on some level to kind of heal the ancestry to the point and and take it to the next level, you know, so your success and what you're doing kind of heals or like frees up like you literally gave that gift with the book. But energetically, I I believe it goes back all, like it goes back through the whole lineage of our ancestors. I mean, that might sound kind of deep, but I have that belief system. I feel like that's part of our work in the world. What a remarkable
1: way to think. I really like that. I do feel that in writing this book, I was able to heal not only myself and the image that I had of India here in the West as being poor, as being illiterate, as being underdeveloped, but it also has helped heal the history of so many people who are reading this book, and they're saying, oh, "Thank you for writing a book that helps me know about my ancestry, beautiful. that helps me have a more positive view of uh, the the people that I come from."
0: It's so beautiful. And do you did you stop working? And you were full time now, author. Author. At what, so at what point, once it hit the success it did, where you're like. It's time to switch gears again. How did that come about? You know,
1: as soon as I got the contract and that was in 2018, okay. as soon as I got the contract, I started weaning off the marketing because I just had a feeling that it was going to be big. And Michelle, I've always had this feeling in my life. I don't know if you've had this, but I always thought I'm going to do something extraordinary someday. Mm. I just don't know what it is. Um, and so I was waiting for it and waiting for it. And when I got that contract, I thought, oh, my God, I can call myself an author now. I think this is going to be a very different path in my life. And I started weaning off the marketing. And by 2019, in the beginning, I was able to hang out my shingle, uh, or I should say I should remo- I could remove my shingle. And uh, then I was just a full-time author. Wow. The The other thing that my publisher had said to me at the time that they gave me the contract is... We are expecting this to be a very big book in 2020 when it's going to be out. So they already had energy, money, and resources behind this book. And uh, I thought, wow, with a large publisher like HarperCollins and Miro Books behind this, yes, we can't go wrong. <laughs> but then... But then, you know, there's always a, but then Yeah, my release date was March the 10th, 2020 (laughs) (laughs) and COVID hits. And every single launch event that I'm supposed to do is canceled. Every um, sort of festival, literary festival, every panel discussion I'm supposed to be on every, everything canceled, canceled, canceled. The world was in flux. And I just thought, oh my God, now what do we do? The bookstores are closing down. The libraries are closing down. Amazon is no longer shipping out books. What are we going to do? And I was really beside myself until we got that call from Reese Witherspoon. Wow. And uh, my editor called me one day and said, I need you to sit down. I have an amazing piece of news for you. And I was like, OK, you know, what could right. go wrong now? <laughs> right. Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. Right, right. And, uh, and she said, Reese Witherspoon is going to tell the world how much she liked oh. your book on May the 1st. And it just completely floored me. I was speechless. I didn't know what to do. I was like, oh, my God. So then my husband comes into the room and he said, what is going on? I'm sensing something. And I told him and he starts jumping up and
0: down. He's like, oh my God, oh my God, it's Reese Witherspoon. (laughs) It's amazing. Everything you just said honestly gave me goosebumps. Like when you were talking about you know, feeling like you were called to something extraordinary. And then when the contract came, I literally just got covered in goosebumps and I did. And I think, you know, I think the truth is, and the reason that I feel so compelled to keep showing up every week and do the show and interview amazing women like you is really to just showcase that this isn't everyone who feels called and it's okay if you don't feel called or maybe the calling will come later, but it's this idea of pay attention to the inner whispers, but it's not always easy To heed that. And like you even said, your journey, you know, it took, uh, I don't know if it was a professor, but someone in the the thesis program who called you and said, "Alka, what happened to your book? Yeah. You know, to reignite that for you where it may have stalled. My sense is that it would have happened anyway, that this was meant to happen. Yes. But- you know that seed got you know little yeah. voice got planted in her head, and she felt compelled to call, which is so fantastic. I, you know, it's yeah. like almost like a living angel. I call those people who just come in at the right time to give yes. you just a little bit of a nudge.
1: Yes, and also Michelle, I think that we all need champions in our lives. And uh, we all need them. We need to be very careful about the partners we choose in our lives because we need for them to be there for us at these moments when we give up on ourselves, when we give up on our dreams, when we say, well, I guess I thought it was going to happen. It's never going to happen. We need those people in our lives. And so if you're not surrounded by those people, find them, (laughs) make them part of your life now.
0: Yeah, actually, could you speak a little bit more to that? Cause I think, you know, women and community is important. And it's true, you know, there's that saying something like you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. But, you know, if you're not being pulled up, how how you know, how have you found those people? I mean, maybe it was taking that chance, going to get the MFA, getting the positive reinforcement. I mean, I always say like follow what interests you and just see what happens. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you continue that road, but just try something. Yeah
1: can I tell you, this is so interesting. I think that those people who are going to help you in your life are drawn to you. Oh, I love this. And they come (laughs) into your life and they show up. I've had this happen over and over and they go, you know what? I'd like to be your friend. Maybe not in those words, but all of a sudden they show up and they go, Hey, let's go do something together. Let's go have a cup of coffee. Let's talk about this. And it floors me every time how those are the people who turn out to be the champions I needed at that moment uh, for that particular uh, thing that I wanted to do in my life. So yeah, it has happened to me over and over and over. And I think, okay, I do think that they are available to everybody. These little Mm -hmm. angels who show up uh, and who champion us, they are actually there all the time, but we need to be able to recognize that they're there. And I think that you draw the energy you put out into this world. I love to be on the positive side of life. I believe that good things will come to me. Mm -hmm. I believe that wonderful um, gratitude that I give out every day to just my health Uh, my husband, my family, uh, thank you so much for being there for me. You know what? It all comes back to you. Yes.
0: Don't you feel that too? Yes. I believe that a hundred percent and it's true, right? It's the energy that we put out. It's like kind of reflected back. And so maybe if you're not vibrating in a space you like, focus on gratitude. I was actually going to ask you, do you have any practices? Like, did you do any visualization? Did you do, sounds like you do gratitude. Do you journal? Do you have anything in terms of, I don't know if you believe in manifesting or whatever you call it, but you know, you talked about intention earlier in the podcast and I believe having clarity and intention then attracts things to you too. But I'd love to hear what you do, if anything, to cultivate that in your life. I don't have any rituals,
1: but I have a bunch of different things that I might do on any given day. I love to go for walks. I think walks are very centering. Mm -hmm. I think that um, you have the opportunity to look around you and appreciate nature for what it is and how beautiful everything is already arranged out here for us to enjoy Um, Then I also use my walking time to further the little movies that I have going on in my head, the scenes that are taking place in the book that I'm working on. And um, that is a wonderful way for me to get the characters moving as I'm moving the characters move through the scenes. So these, th- that is one thing that I do. Uh, another thing I do is um, I talk to either my father or I talk to someone in my family about, um, yeah, I don't know, something that I remember from our past. Mm-hmm. And then they'll remember something from their past. And it kind of triggers these happy memories or memories that maybe even be poignant uh, that maybe I can use in my writing or something like that. I do yoga. Hmm. And I find that the ability to stretch and to um, stretch maybe farther than I think I can is a wonderful way Hmm. to uh, loosen up some of those creative juices in my mind. Um, What else do I do? Uh, I do give gratitude, not on any kind of regular basis, but, you know, every now and then my husband and I will look at each other and we'll go, we are so lucky. We live such a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. I mean, here we are in California. We have excellent weather most of the year. Yes, uh, We have greenery around us. We have flowers all the time. We have our two little dogs who are just loving us all the time. Mm. You know, we have friends, we have a great neighborhood. Um, So there's so much to be grateful for all the time. So yeah, I think that we practice gratitude, not on any formal level, but you know, every now and then we just take the time to look around and say, thanks.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. I actually saw a video with you and your husband. I think you were making some. He seemed very sweet. He seemed very sweet. I was like, oh, I can tell this is a supportive husband. I can just forget that you get the vibe (laughs) from him. Um, Were you a creative little girl? I mean, did you? Did you have anything from your childhood that somehow connects to this, where you are today? Do you see anything? Can you share that? I was an artist always, Ah. always,
1: always. I was an artist. I drew, I sketched, I painted. Um, I would even like just have chalk and draw on the chalkboards of all of my classrooms. I was constantly drawing and, um, my parents were always like where did she get this you know because neither one of them drew and my brothers don't draw nobody in their families was an artist And I don't know where I got it from, but I have always been an artist. So when it came time to do the henna artist and all of the designs that Lakshmi uh, creates, those are all from my imagination. Those are all things that I would draw if I were a henna artist. They're not things that I've ever seen any other henna artist draw. It's just what I draw. And when I designed Lakshmi's floor, that is something that came from my imagination and something that I would draw for Lakshmi had she uh, commissioned me to do that Floor, And one of the scenes that I'm so looking forward to in the TV series is the last scene where Lakshmi is is, uh, dancing in her house on that beautiful floor and she has lit those candles all around the room and uh, she is dancing this Kathak dance uh, to the music that only she can hear. Oh Oh, my gosh. I cannot wait uh, for them to realize that.
0: (laughs) This is so exciting. I want to talk to you about the TV series, but I just want to follow through because it's always interesting about how much of you, your mom, you know, is showing up, you know, you wondered, you know, with the detail of the art and here you are talking, it's the henna artist. So you were an artist, the blue eyes, you have blue eyes. I do. Yes. Your mom too.
1: My mom had green eyes and then my younger brother got sort of green, gray eyes so yes, I have blue eyes. And when I was born, my birth name was Milam, which means blue. Oh,
0: and that's, that's, that's why they named me blue. Yeah. <gasps> that's so beautiful. Okay. <laughs> and so that translated into the story. I always feel like, you know, and so do your characters speak to you? You talked about going on the walks. Are they yep. like constantly talking to you? And do, and when they do, what do you do? Do you stop and write it? Or how no. do you? Okay. No, it's almost as if
1: I'm the director of a movie And I am watching these actors play them, play out the scene. And then I think to myself, no, I don't like the way that they talk to one another. I think this should be different. So then I have them go back to their original places. And I'm just doing all of this in my imagination. And then I have them play it out a different way. I say, you know, like, rather, you need to be a lot angrier in this scene. So tell me what you would do as an angry person. So um, I'm almost like I'm directing a movie in my head. Now I do not start writing the scene down until I have most of it played out in my head oh. and I've reworked it in my head. So, you know how I got this idea? This is really, really strange. But um, I, first of all, as a, as somebody who used to write commercials and write radio spots, I am used to fabricating a lot of things in my imagination first, before I write things down. Yes. And so, um, I read a book by Edward P. Jones called um, The Known World. I don't know if you've read it, but then I got so fascinated. I love the book. I got so fascinated. I looked him up and uh, I read that he used to have this job with um, one of those intelligence agencies in D.C. And every day he would take the bus to work and he'd be working out this story in his head. And 19 years later, when he got laid off, the whole story comes spilling out onto the page. He had been building it all in his head this entire time. And I thought, I
0: like that idea. I could do that. I, I hold a lot in my head. <laughs> I love it. And so do I I believe that if somebody's feeling called to be a writer, not everyone feels that. So if somebody's got a story, at least play with it, what what would you say? Because the thing is not everyone's going to have the success that you've had and be able to do it full-time, but I just love your thoughts on this idea of intention, clarity, you know, bringing things to your life and honoring who you are, but then maybe tempering expectations. Can you speak to this? Yeah.
1: yeah. I think one of the best ways that somebody can become a writer. Uh, And I always try to encourage uh, my book club members whom I speak to. And by the way, I just completed my 440th book club yesterday in a year. (laughs) So yeah, yeah. And so um, one thing that I always tell these members is, um, if you want to start writing, or you think you may have a calling to write, one of the best things to do is to talk to your mother, talk to your aunt, talk to anybody who was alive in a different generation, came of age in a different generation, and just interview them. Just ask them questions about, what did they like to eat? What games did they like to play? Who were their friends? Who did they like to hang out with? What are the what's the music they used to listen to? And you will find such a wealth of information and a way to communicate with that person in a way that you may never have communicated with them before that then you want to write down everything that they told you. And who knows? Maybe that will be the kernel of something that you start working on as a fiction writer, or maybe it becomes a family history that you then pass on to the next generation, or maybe it's just something that you share with your kids.
0: Absolutely. That's so it's beautiful. I love that. I love that so much. Um, what did I, so, so many things I want to ask you, so I want to keep it focused on the um, <laughs> So tell us about the TV series. So how did that come into play then? That must have been an exciting piece of the story unfolding for you. That must have been like another one of those surreal moments.
1: Surreal, because um, I spoke to Reese Witherspoon, the amazing Reese Witherspoon on May the 1st. Did she call you? no, no. Uh, we we spoke on um, Zoom because we were all in lockdown at that point. Oh, yeah. I might have had the ability to be with her one on one down in Santa Monica, but uh, that didn't happen because yes. of Zoom. So we did this Zoom thing. Yes. And uh, what was so lovely is that uh, she's like the girl next door. So she doesn't make you feel like, you know, she's better than you or anything like that. (laughs) It's just like talking to your next door neighbor. And uh, as I was speaking to her, I remembered this moment in 2006 when she accepted the Academy Award. And what she said was, I just want to matter in my life. (sighs) And I thought, oh my God, that's what I want to do. I just want to matter. I want to know that my time here on earth meant something, that I stood for something, that I helped somebody carve out something new for themselves. And uh, so I, I remember, telling her that during our May 1st Zoom. And I said, I remember this thing that you said. And when I said it, I started crying. I don't know why I started crying. I guess it it was just such a moving thing for me to hear and to want to do for myself. And I thought, that's my intention. I want to matter in this life. And then she started crying. She started tearing up. And so it was really a great moment. And um, I just felt really close to her in that moment. But the real beauty of Reese Witherspoon is four years ago, she said to herself, I love these books that are written by women for women with these really strong female characters. I love them. My girlfriends, when I tell them about them, love them. Why do I not see them in the major promotional uh, trade magazines or the New York Times or wherever? Why am I not seeing these same ones? Why don't I use my influence to let women know about these. And that is what she's done in four years. And now when you look at the New York Times bestseller list, you see so many of her selections there. She is just amazing. So I talked to her on May 1st. By May 14th, I just checked my calendar the other day. I was getting calls about people wanting to uh, option the rights to the henna artist. That is a power of Reese Witherspoon.
0: Amazing. And when is it going to be in the big, like, when are we going to see it? Do we know? Does it take a while? So it's in development, and you know okay.
1: that takes about two years. Yeah. So um, hopefully we will be filming in late 2022 or early 2023. And uh, I chose uh, one of the production teams who had put in the proposal. Yes. One of the one of the first things that my screen management company asked me, uh, you know, Ellen Goldsmith, she said. Uh, do you want this to be a movie or do you want this to be a TV series? And I said, oh, my gosh, I want this to be a bingeable TV series because I love those kinds of things. Right. Like a
0: Bridgerton. but
1: (laughs) Exactly. And so she said, Okay. so when uh, anybody uh, called about uh, the optioning, the rights, she said the author would like a TV series. I felt so powerful in that moment. Like, oh, I get to tell them what I want. So they came back with all of these uh, proposals for a TV series. And I chose this one production team that I just immediately felt very comfortable with. Michael Edelstein, who had read The Henna Artist and who had been uh, in charge of NBC Universal Studios in London when Downton Abbey was getting filmed all of those years. He said, we could make The Henna Artist an Indian Downton Abbey. Oh, my goodness. That is is what we could do. This is so exciting. Yeah. And so he got it. He got the fact that this is about India. This is about uh, a people And it's written by a South Asian. You know, this is not the British perspective of India. This is India. And so he gets it because he loves India. Mm. And so he called up his friend, Frida Pinto, and said, Frida, you got to read this book. I'm sending it down to you. Uh, You know, think about whether you want to play Lakshmi. She read it and she said, yes, I'm on board. I want to play Lakshmi. And I want to executive produce because we're going to do this in India and you're going to need my help to coordinate, uh, you know, the Indian director, the Indian cinematographer and all of that. Of that And he's like, great. Then he has a first look deal with Miramax TV. So he gets them on board. Amazing. So now there's this amazing team, we have a showrunner, they've got a pilot, they're uh, pitching to all of these um, screening uh, um, platforms. Uh, because that's what you have to do now. You you go and screen, uh, you go and uh, try to get money from all these screening platforms. And so, you know, we'll see what happens. I don't want to get my hopes up too high because a lot of development projects do not ever make
0: it to yeah. the big or small screen. Yeah. But um, I have a feeling that this I'm one will. Say, but, <laughs> as you said that, I'm like, no. I'm getting, you're going to, this is going to happen. I can just feel it. I feel it so strongly. I can't even tell you. Um, It's so exciting. I want to go back to the women who might be listening. And what did you say? 442 book clubs? You did? 440 book clubs. Yeah. 440 book clubs. So any of those women, including, so I'll give a shout out to Susan Grates, who was one of the book clubs you spoke to and said, she's part of my community. I've never met her. And she was lovely and said, you know, would you be interested in interviewing Elka? And I was like, Yes, this is so fun. Of course I would. So thank you, Susan, and to your book club. So I just want to give Yay. them a shout out. Um, and so two women like that are the women who have tuned in every week, the women around the world who are listening, who are thinking, I'm too old. It's too late. Uh, you know, they don't feel like they matter. You know, they don't have that. They lose the confidence. A lot of times women who do go into the full-time mom thing and, you know, think they're going to on-ramp back onto something, they kind of lose a sense of self because they knew themselves as you know, lawyer, doc, whatever it might've been, you know, marketer. I was, my background was in corporate marketing for lawyers of all things, you know, and you just go, well, I don't know. So I say follow that voice, but t- how do we, how do they, how do they cultivate? Cause we, we both are aligned in this designing a meaningful life to matter. You all matter. Everyone matters, but you want to feel like you left that legacy of something that you're soul is calling you to do. And actually those tears, when you were telling that story, I was tearing up oh. because I believe the tears are your soul remembering. When you get those kind of tears, that's your soul's knowing going, yes, because this is why you're here. And now you are on purpose and on path, but I yeah. want that for everyone, including myself. So what yeah. advice can you give? I know that was a kind of a big question, but. I
1: think one of the most beautiful things that anybody can do in their lives is to keep learning throughout their life. Keep taking a class. You know, if you think, I love this pottery, I want to do something like that take a pottery class. Maybe you'll be good at it. Maybe you won't be good at it. It doesn't matter. You learn something new. And as you learn something new, whether it's a new language, whether it's a a workshop where you're learning how to write a short story or even just one scene or learning about characters, um, even if you just take the class you are opening up pathways in your brain. And of course, there's a lot of research around this with neuroscience. Mm-hmm. You're opening up pathways in your brain that haven't been opened up for a while. And it's amazing how that can lead to another path and another path and another path. It's like all these doors start opening up in your brain and you go, hey, maybe I wasn't good at the pottery, but you know what I really liked is this whole idea of the paints that I put in the pottery. I want to learn about paint. I want to learn about you know, how to do that maybe on canvas. So." There's all kinds of things that we can still learn no matter what age we are. And we have our hands available to us. We have our voice available to us. And we have this internet available to us. So even if we can't get out of the house, we can be learning so many different kinds of things. I would really encourage women to never stop learning. And I think that's one of the reasons why they're in book clubs, because they want to have community. They want to have a book club where they can talk about books. But you know what? Go deeper find out why you like uh, reading so much and find out more, delve more into the research of some of these books. Uh, maybe look at the acknowledgements page and see what kind of books this particular author used for their research. And then delve into that a little bit deeper. Just learn as much as you can.
0: Yeah. And see where it takes you. Have, yeah. have the, explore it with the play of a toddler. You know, they're just delight in anything that's new. Right. And just have some fun with it. I also ask my guests sometimes, you know, what would your 85 year old self tell you about living a good life? Because, you know, if you're looking at it from a future self, it wouldn't be to say, you know, live for everyone else. That would not be the answer. You know? Yes. So um,
1: uh, I think there's a couple of different things. One is I think you should have friends of all ages, because mm-hmm. it keeps you young. And I'm not just talking about your children being your friends, because that's a different relationship yeah. and you will always feel more responsible for them and want to give them advice. No, I'm talking about uh, having friends who are in their twenties in their thirties and their forties, because they're at different points of their lives. And it's interesting to learn their perspective on, on things. So uh, I think always be open to listening more than talking. Mm. I think listening is a great way to also become a better writer. You need Mm. to listen to other people. Um, and then I think the last thing is that you have to just keep taking classes, learn new things, never stop learning. Um, you know, my dad is 89 and mm-hmm. he is constantly still sending me YouTube videos or TED talk videos. And he'll say, honey, I think this, this was fascinating about how to build a more sustainable environment. You might be interested in this. That's you know, so uh, so I just think. And my mother was the same way. She was mm. always learning something. So when she got into plants, she read everything she could about plants and how to grow house plants, how to, uh, you know, uh, grow them outside of your house, how to get rid of the pests, how to, you know, make them flourish, and all of this. I was always surprised at how deeply my mom went into whatever she was interested in, and really got to learn that. So um, I really think that learning something new in your life and learn something that, you know, you have a passion about, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. it's something that you gave up a long time ago. Maybe a long time ago, you were really into, I don't know, roller skating, go back and roller skate, see if you can still do it.
0: (laughs) Totally. And you know, what I think it's so interesting. You talked about being an artist as a kid and here's your book. It's so interesting because the book is, you know, for those who are listening, can't see it, but once this is on YouTube, it's the Hannah artist. I feel like oftentimes, you know, those there's, parts of ourselves that when we allow the exploration and the play and listen to those voices telling us to follow it, you got to express your artistry in so many different ways, obviously as in PR and ad and all of that, but then through the book and through your main character, you got to play out and be a part of her. I mean, it's just so beautiful. So you were uniquely designed to to create this book, right? I mean, I just think it's cool. And I think when you're further along in the path, you can connect those dots and go, oh, wow, it was, you know, this experience, this passion as a child, all of this that created these rich and beautiful characters yeah. in this book. Well, Michelle, I actually think that everything that has come
1: before yes. has informed how we're going to do, live our lives here on out. So yes. for me to write this book, guess what? All of my experience in uh, making presentations to C suites. Came in handy when I got when I had a chance to talk about the book. Uh, everything that I had done in my past as an artist, every kind of corporate job I have had, where I've had to interact with people, inform me about how Lakshmi would deal with uh, her clients as she is going through her life in the novel. Yes. Uh, so everything that you have done in your past life, it is all building up to this wonderful crescendo. Oh, and yes. I think we can use all of it uh, to write, to create, to uh, you know live a better life. I think we can use everything we have learned so far to do that.
0: I love that perspective. It's the building up maybe versus, and that's why when you look back, it connects, but it was actually, like you said, it, it builds up to a crescendo. I love that. I've actually not thought of it that way. Um, people are going to want to know, do you have a writing practice? Anyone out there who's a writer or an aspiring writer is going to want to know what you do.
1: My only writing practice is, as I told you before, is really just to, um, go walking yes. and to keep thinking about these characters and to, uh, play out these scenes in my mind, like a movie. And then once I get them, uh, pretty well honed, then I start writing them down on my laptop. And then I'll move on to another scene in my head and work that out. And then finally put it down on paper. And for me, it's like threading a necklace. I have beads, which are each of these key scenes. And by the way, I do Um, identify a key scene in a book versus a minor scene in a book. Mm. And if I have too many minor scenes, I start eliminating, cutting, 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 because really what you're looking for are the major scenes that are propelling your characters forward uh, on their trajectory of life. So that is something that you have to do. That's something I learned in my MFA program is how to identify key scenes And then the other thing that I do is I have a visual library on my laptop about the kinds of things that I'm researching. So for example, in The Secret Keeper of Japur, I've got um, not only scenes of Japur, but I've got scenes of Shimla that I have found on the internet and they all go into my visual library. Then I have ideas of what these people look like. So Nimmi, uh, the tribal woman, I have a visual of her that I have put in that visual file. I have a visual of what my... It looks like now, and I have that in my visual file. So, whenever I start writing about these characters, I actually can refer back to these uh, visual things that I have, and I go, Oh, okay, that's what this particular house looks like that I'm in right now with these characters. That is uh, what I need to describe. So, that helps a lot to have a visual library that then you can refer to every single scene uh, that you're writing.
0: And do you use a particular software, or are you just opening up Word?
1: No, I just open up Word and then uh, with my visual library, it's just a file on my computer. And I just start plopping all of the visuals that I, that I find. I just start plopping them all in there. Mm-hmm. And then when I need to refer to them, I go through the whole visual library and I go, Ah, there's that flower I was looking for. Now I can describe that flower.
0: <laughs> love it. I love it. It's so fun. It's, it's, it's always interesting. I think people are always curious, you know, what the writing process of somebody who's been so successful um, at doing and, it. And by
1: the way, Michelle, I do not subscribe to the, I've got to write a thousand words a day business. I don't work that way. And I don't think we should tell everybody that they need to work that way. Because what that does is it frustrates people who do not have that as their practice. So it's very frustrating to look at a blank page and say, okay, I got to fill this uh, up today. No, I think it's better to move uh, if that doesn't work for you, then try something else like what I do, which is I move uh, physically uh, to get the scenes moving in my head. I also think about my characters. Sometimes the last thing I go to bed and I'm thinking about a scene or in the shower.
0: You knew so- you going to say that. I was just thinking <laughs> in the shower. That's where all the ideas come. In the shower. It is true, right? Yeah. Right. And then you just once you've played it out, though, you don't just put down what you saw. You're directing first, and then you're putting it down. Exactly. And are you going in the order of the book? Is like, do you know the ending before you start?
1: No, No, I I go in order. It it is a successive order. That is how the scenes come, and I never know what the ending is going to be. I I don't know. That
0: (laughs) that's actually pretty exciting because that's you know maybe that's why it's so rich when we're reading it because we're like we're going along kind of how you did and the unfolding of the story.
1: I know. And then Michelle the best thing happens, which is your character surprise you.
0: So your character
1: start doing things and you think, whoa, I hadn't anticipated that. That's cool.
0: They come alive. Truly yeah. they come alive. I can't wait yeah. to see it. Well, we won't jinx it, but on the, on the television, um, I could keep you here all day. I won't, I have to ask you just a fun question. If I were coming over to your house yeah. for a traditional dinner, yes, what would you want to serve
1: me? Okay. I'm going to serve you basmati rice with yes. uh, cumin seeds in it and probably mm. peas. And then I'm going to serve you alu gobi sabji, which is potato cauliflower sabji. And I put a uh, version of what my mom used to make in the secret keeper of where I put that recipe in there. And then, uh, of course, we're going to start off with the Maharani cocktail that my older brother invented for my books. Um, and then we're going to have probably a, a eggplant dish because I love eggplant mm. and it's called bangan Bertha. That's mm. uh, how they make it with onions. And it becomes a very creamy mixture with eggplant and onions and garlic and uh, maybe even putting in some uh, zucchini. So you just kind of make that until it's super creamy. Um, And then maybe I'll serve you some um, coconut milk. um, You know, like if if you like chicken, I'll make you a coconut milk curry chicken. Uh, If you like prawns, uh, I'll make you coconut curry prawns or something like that. And that'll be our
0: meal. Ooh, I will well, be over <laughs> after COVID. That's so lovely. I know that the, the food is such a big part of the book and it's just yeah. fun. And, you know, that was part of what you wanted to impart on people reading It's just yeah. that, the rich heritage and the delicious food and all of that. And yeah. um, so I'd like to ask my guests to wrap up with leaving them. And it's, you know, you pick what feels your, your heart is calling. Three best tips on living, we'll say a meaningful life. A meaningful life versus a good life. A meaningful life
1: don't let life happen to you. Have an intention for what you want in your life. What kind of life do you want to create? And then as you plant that intention in your head, I guarantee you that almost everything you do in your life will work towards that intention. But you need to clarify the intention and have it inside your uh, brain all the time. Uh, I think that's maybe rule number one. Number two is always try to have joy in your life every single day you know whether it's uh, a phone call with your children uh, if you have adult children or whether it's you know uh, uh, you're petting your dog and you're walking with them uh, or whether it's you know some uh, something that you listen to like music that you absolutely love like the other day I put on a Santana's smooth I love that song and I had it (laughs) blasting really loud as I was getting ready in the morning I just love that so I have some joy in your life every single day. And then I think the last thing is learn something every single day. I think every single day, at the end of the day, you should ask yourself, did I learn something new today? It might've been something about a neighbor. It might've been something about um, the writing process or the creative process. It might've been something like somebody listened to your broadcast and thought, Hey, that's an idea that I could take in my life and do something with. So learn something new every day.
0: Love everything you shared today. This was absolutely (laughs) such a pleasure. One of my all-time favorite interviews ever. You are just such a lovely soul and beautiful writer. I would love to be able to direct people to buy these books. So these are two summer reads. So if they haven't read The Henna Artist, then they need to pick that up and then they can get The Secret Keeper of of Jaipur. So where do I direct them? Yay, your new book. Congratulations. (laughs) Don't they do? They do such a beautiful job on those Gorgeous covers. covers. Gorgeous.
1: Um, So you can direct them to AlkaJoshi.com. And uh, I've got all of my social media handles there. And I love Instagram. So I'm absolutely there. And by the way, this particular month, The Secret Keeper is coming out. So there's a whole bunch of people doing these amazing giveaways. Libro FM is doing a giveaway of three audiobooks uh, for The Secret Keeper of Jaipur. Um, Then there are all of these, um, you know, I have these super fans, basically. We call them Alka Ambassadors. And they are putting uh, together giveaways so they can give out free copies of The Secret Keeper. So it's it's Fantastic. And then the other thing, Michelle, and I hadn't anticipated this, but we are on 15 different summer reads lists, including Good Morning America, uh, the Christian Science Monitor, CNN. I mean, it's amazing how how many people are looking forward to to having this as a summer read. And I'm excited about that, too.
0: Well, I'm excited to to read it this summer. (laughs) So I just (laughs) pre-ordered it. So um, thank you. Thank you for your beautiful work in the world and for taking the time to be here today. Thank you so much.
1: And thanks, Michelle, for being also an extraordinary uh, inspiration to a lot of women, no matter what age they are. Mm -hmm. You're very
0: kind. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration